Well, welcome to catechesis. Um, this is going to be a normal thing. We'll just use this for hymns instead of using the screen. That way I don't have to scrounge up, uh, you know, clickers and things beforehand. And that way, those of you who like to sing in four-part harmony are, can absolutely do so. Believe me, you will find no, I will not, I will not be disappointed. Um, uh, we're continuing on in the catechism, and we are now at uh, question 38. Um, we're going to start to delve into, uh, having done this introductory material, we're going to start to delve into the content of the creed. Uh, remember, we are looking at the Apostles' Creed, and uh, I might just offer this to you. Um, why do we use the Apostles' Creed instead of the Nicene Creed for this catechism? What's that? Um, it may be, but not actually that much. I mean, it, it's, its initial forms are older. The Apostles' Creed is a baptismal creed, and the Nicene Creed is, uh, is a creed of the ecumenical church to spell out doctrine clearly. The baptismal creeds were taught to those who were about to be baptized so that they could repeat the words right before, or even in many cases during, their baptism. Um, and so that, that in, in the church's liturgy, uh, the Apostles' Creed is, is, is put in the place of uh, a baptismal creed. So, um, you know, when, when people are baptized, they recite the Apostles' Creed. When uh, people are confirmed, they recite the Apostles' Creed. They're taught uh, the Apostles' Creed. And I should say as well, um, for many, many, many centuries, uh, the, the catechisms were formed with one, of the, with one of the pillars being the Apostles' Creed. So those who were being instructed uh, were to be instructed in the Apostles' Creed. And the Nicene Creed actually um, has um, a bit of an interesting history in that it's been accepted, but um, not always uh, said and not always repeated. Um, for instance, in, in the Anglican morning prayer tradition, you'd never say the Nicene Creed. Um, the Nicene Creed is only, is only said uh, during a celebration of the Eucharist. So that's something to just keep in mind. Uh, but the Apostles' Creed is shorter. That's got some, some benefit to it. Um, it's much more easy to memorize, although I will say, you know, you're probably going to memorize all of them over time, um, if, if I would guess. Uh, but that's an important thing just to note, that the Apostles' Creed refers uh, to that tradition of teaching catechumens a creed prior to their baptism. Okay, question 38. This is on page 38. How convenient. Who is God? God is one divine being eternally existing in three divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this is the Holy Trinity. So we Christians profess faith in the God who is Trinity. Um, now, how many beings? One. <laughs> one. One and only one, okay? One being who is God. Um, but we speak of three persons. Now, how many beings do you have? One. How many persons do you have? Okay, hopefully. Okay. <laughs> um, and and this is this is this is a this is just to point out to you that this this way of speaking about persons is actually a Christian idea that's brought into the world uh, to to explain the Trinity. Any idea that we people that we have today of personhood comes directly out of the Christian tradition as a way of speaking about God. Um, that is to say that, that when we speak about the persons of the Trinity, um, we're speaking about a distinctive, um, well, it's hard to even put it, it's, it's, 
persons, right? Um, and we know what a person means, yes? There's, there's a distinction there. Um, but when we speak of God, we're speaking about one being, three persons. Now, of course, here's the problem. Can I explain it any better than that? No. There's a wonderful old joke that I love to tell sometimes uh, about, about a, a class of young, young people about to be confirmed. And there was one of the kids who had a terrible lisp. And, uh, and, and it was always a cause of consternation for the teachers, you know. Uh, and, and the bishop showed up. And as bishops used to do, and as I hope they'll do again someday, the bishop decided to, uh, to thoroughly examine the confirmants. And so he finally gets up to little Timmy with his lisp, and, and he says, Son, what is the Holy Trinity? And the boy looks up at him and says, Three persons coexisting in, you know, in one being, that is the divine trinity. And the bishop says, Son, I don't understand. And the little boy looks up at him and says, Of course you don't. It's a mystery. <laughs> so that's just to clear that out. Um, I love that joke. Um, but it is. It's a mystery, right? Um, it's something which we, we do not, we cannot fully understand now. Um, but there will come a day when all will be revealed. Yes? And, and in beholding the face of God, um, we will see, you know, we who see imperfectly now will see fully. Um, and so this is something that has that been very, very inviting to Christians through the years to engage in this thinking about the Trinity, to engage in this mystery of the Trinity, uh, because it is, a, it is a mystery that draws you forward, yes? Not because you can understand it now, because what, what would happen if you just understood the Trinity now? You'd probably die, okay? Um, you, you'd die in awe and wonder. Uh, but but, but God, is, God, is, uh, God is the lover who draws us into himself, um, not by revealing everything, uh, but by revealing um, uh, in part, drawing us into his life. I mean, after all, have you ever been in a relationship with somebody who's so loquacious that they just can't stop talking, namely about themselves? Anyone? Okay, I'll raise my hand. <laughs> it's misery. Why is it misery? Because all the mystery is gone. Um, and, and this is to say that... that, um, that when we state this doctrine of the Trinity, um, that's one of the things we're stating. The other thing that I would be really uh, clear about is that the doctrine of the Trinity comes about because of the church's pondering of what happens in the incarnation and in what happens in the sending of the Holy Spirit to be with us. Um, who is this God that we meet in Jesus Christ? Um, are we talking about a new God? No, no. Uh, it's the church's understanding that in Jesus Christ, they meet the God of Israel. Yes? And the Trinity is a way of wrestling with that and saying that, yes, this is who we meet in Jesus. Although, um, although uh, we, meet, we meet a different person, but we meet the same being. Okay. Question 39. According to Holy Scripture, what is the nature and character of God? God is love sharing an eternal communion of love between the three persons, God loves and mercifully redeems fallen creation. God is holy. God is utterly transcendent, good, righteous, and opposed to all sin and evil. God's love is holy. God's holiness is loving. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the fullest expression of God's whole character. 
Okay, we're going to break all that down. Okay, you've heard this before. God is love. Yes, it comes from First John chapter four, um, and uh, it's a wonderful stating of, of who God is and His essence. Um, and I would say that uh, this is shown forth in the fact that the persons of the Trinity are not uh, sort of like unrelated to one another, are they? No, in fact, they are. They are completely related to one another in a in a loving communion. Of, of, of persons. And that communion of love does not sort of, um, well, it, it does, but it, but it, it means that uh, God's love gets, gets spread, yes? Um, and out of that love, out of that love which exists within the Trinity, God loves and mercifully redeems fallen creation. Um, we say very clearly that God is holy, Holiness is not just some kind of like uh, non-essential attribute of God. Um, holiness is, is who God is. Um, and that means that, um, well, how should we put it? That God is not like you and I. Um, he is other. Um, he is transcendent. What does it mean to be transcendent? Okay, this is really hard for modern people to get, okay, because we... We most of the time live with our noses on the ground, okay? And most of the time we live by our experience of things that we can taste, touch, and feel, okay? It means that God is to be understood to exist within the realm of things that you cannot touch, taste, and feel. Whoa, right? Um, that's, that's what it means to be transcendent. Um, you know, it's, you think about Moses meeting God in the burning bush, yes? And, and it's completely clear that God is not a burning bush. And what does he say? Who, who shall I say sent me? What does God say? Yeah, you tell them that I am sent you. Okay, that's, that's God's transcendence and holiness. Um, God is good, righteous, and opposed to all sin and evil. And here's where we get down to it. God's love is holy. God's holiness is loving. Okay. This is often how our unlimited minds, we sort, of, we sort of think, oh, but there are so many contradictions to be had here. Uh, so many paradoxes. They just start to flourish in your mind. You think, okay, well, how could a loving God do this, that, and another thing? How could a loving God examine this? How could a loving God let this happen? How could a loving God do da 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 How could a holy God do this? Um, you start to get in this cage of thinking, wow, oh, it all seems to be contradictory. Um, but at the core of it is that um, that, uh, that God is not, there, his, his character does not get distinguished one piece of character from the other. Why? This is the very beginning of the law, and we often leave it out. God is one. Um, you and I are not, at the end of the day, we don't have a lot of integrity, right? I mean, that's what the word integer means. It means a single number, right? And integrity means you're one. Um, you're the same with your wife as you are with your, with your friends. Um, you're the same with your children as you are in any other place. Um, and that's confusing to us, yes? Because we say, well, <laughs> you know, I wish all my character attributes were, were together in one place. Wouldn't that be nice? But they're not. But with God, that's exactly the way things are. And then in the final, in the final phrase, we say this. The Lord Jesus Christ is the full ex fullest expression of God's whole character. And what we mean by this is that the fullest extent of God's divine revelation of himself is to be found in Jesus Christ. 
And it's and it's, and I've said this before this morning, but it's that which drives the doctrine of the Trinity forward, um, and it's that which pretty much fuels the controversy for a good long while, right? Which is to say that the, the church understands Jesus Christ to be God incarnate. And not just any God, but the God of Israel, living among them. Um, and how do you reconcile this? Well, there are only a few ways. I mean, one is to say, well, there's a new God now. Okay, that's great. So now we have two gods. And, and if you worship the Holy Spirit, you might have three gods. But this is unacceptable. Uh, because remember, uh, Jews are good monotheists, right? Uh, they believe in one God who created everything that is. Um, and and the, the most amazing thing is that they teach, and we teach, that it is this God that we meet in Jesus Christ. Um, and, as well, as the, as the later fathers say, it is this God who indwells us by the Holy Spirit. Okay. Who is God the Father? God the Father is the first person to the Holy Trinity, from whom the Son is equally begotten, and the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds. Okay. Let's break it down a little bit. Okay, what does it mean when we say that God the Father is the first person of the Holy Trinity? Does it mean he's the best of the persons? No. Here, here this kind of first, second, third is not a, uh, is not a statement about, about quality or degree or anything like that. Um, it's a bit like I have six children, right? And just because one is the fourth and one is the first doesn't mean that I love the first more than the fourth. It's actually a statement of equality, first, second, third. Um, but the Father is the first. Um, now, why do we say the first? The Father's the first. Ah. Because it's from the Father that the Holy Spirit proceeds, and it's from the Father that the Son is begotten. Um, and so the Father's understood to be first. Um, and that's why we say this. From whom the Son is eternally begotten, and the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds. Why do you call the, the first of the three divine persons Father? Our Lord Jesus Christ called God Father and taught his disciples to do the same. And St. Paul teaches that God adopts believers as his children and heirs in Christ, sending his Holy Spirit into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Um, this language of Father can often be uh, off-putting to people uh, because there's a kind of healthy uh, disregard or distaste for patriarchy, right? Uh, it's this kind of idea of well, hell patriarchy deserved to die, and we should keep it dead, especially in our doctrine of God. Um, and I think this is mistaken. Um, it's mistaken in a serious way because it doesn't take seriously divine revelation, where God is revealed as Father. Um, it also doesn't take seriously that there are actual ways of being a father that aren't malicious, okay? that aren't terrible, that aren't awful, um, that aren't oppressive. Okay? Um, and I think we see this in Scripture. Our Lord Jesus called God Father. Um, and not in a way that was like, uh, Father, or geez, Dad. It wasn't like that. Um, it's, it's a loving relationship which we see. And he taught his disciples to do the same. We're going to talk a lot more about this when we, hit the, when we hit the Lord's Prayer, but think about the great thing that's being communicated when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. The first lesson in prayer is this. With me, pray to the Father, who is not my Father, but our Father. Ooh, you see what's going on? Jesus has expanded the circle. 
um, he has he has uh, unlimited the bonds of of um, of the affection of the triune God, which of course has never been limited to begin with. Yes, um, but he uh, Saint Augustine has a wonderful thing where he's preaching on the Lord's Prayer. He says, you know, "Think of Jesus stretched out on the cross." And what do earthly fathers do when they find out that there's going to be one more baby? Oh, they start to say, oh, jeez. You know, things are tight right now, honey. I mean, <laughs> this is going to be really tough. <laughs> and he's stressed about it. Yes? He's worried about it. Um, he sits, you know, the whole, there, listen, there's a whole economy surrounding this. Parents who are freaked out about one more baby. What, what would one more baby mean for us? Jesus on the cross. Appeals to the Father. Hey, Dad, you think you've got room for one more? And what's the answer? Yes, always yes. Uh, the Father constantly with the capacity for adoption. Yes? This is, this is the glory of what that means. And it refers explicitly to a, to a shared concept in both Judaism and first century uh, Roman culture of adoption. You may not know this, but uh, Roman and Jewish families in those days were massive compared to our families today. You'd have 50, 60 to 100 people living, living under one roof. And the capacity within Roman law was for the father to adopt whomever he chose and give them full rights of heirship. Yes? No questions asked. He's a member of the family now. That's it. It's done. It's, do you see what adoption means in that, in that sense? This is how God reveals himself. Is as a father. Um, and Paul teaches this, that God adopts believers as his children and heirs in Christ, and furthermore, sends his Holy Spirit into our hearts. And what does the Holy Spirit continually pray within us? Oh. Abba, 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 Abba. Groaning out for the Father. Um, and this is to say that even when we forget it, which, how often is that? Do you forget your status as a child of God? Often, yes? Okay. And usually that's what happens when you're out doing something you shouldn't be doing. You're sinning. You know, it's like, I have I've neglected my, uh, my, my status. Um, Blaise Pascal used to, used to speak of human beings as, as disinherited princes. Ooh. Like, ooh. Uh, and that one of the glorious things about redemption is that the inheritance which is ours is given back to us, and it's given back to us more lavishly than we could have imagined. I mean, think about it. The, prod the parable of the prodigal son is that story. It's about a son who asks for his inheritance. He asks for what is his. He gets it. He spends it. He blows it. He comes back, and he gets a better inheritance than he had before. How's that work? It's, it's the mystery of God's grace, yes? Because, listen, God doesn't sort of look at us and say, man, you know, it's a little tight this month, son. I don't know if I can give you that. Because the inheritance which is ours as the saints is what? It's everything. Everything I have is yours. Everything you have is mine. That's the basic stating of the covenant. My goodness. They're bringing it today. What do you mean when you call God Father. When I call God Father, I acknowledge that I was created by God for a relationship with Him, that God made me in His image, that I trust God as my protector and provider, 
and that I put my hope in God as his child and heir in Christ. Okay. When we call God Father, and we do this in the creeds, we do it in the Lord's Prayer, we do it continually, I acknowledge that I was created by God for relationship with him. Um, and this is why, uh, you'll note, I, sort of, I, I actually intentionally avoid using just the standard word God in preaching. I'll do it occasionally for effect. But one of the things I'm really intent on is saying, no, God is, the, God is a loving Father. He uses the word Lord a lot. Why? Because I want to get it through your head that we don't believe in the generic God of the gaps. That's not who we believe. Um, we believe in a, in a God who has created us for relationship with Him, and when we call Him Father, we respond in that way. Um, we say when we say that God created us as Father that we are made in His image. And what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Oh. <laughs> this, is a big, this is a big question, right? The answer to this question will, uh, will change your life. Does it mean you look like God? Can you look like the transcendent God? No. Go ahead. Yes, it means that we're made for a relationship with God, but what kind of relationship? What is the quality of that relationship to be? Okay, I'm going to spell it out. Being made in the image of God means that you and I were made to be like Jesus. Straight up. Um, Jesus, who is the only begotten Son of the Father, perfectly reflects the glory of the Father. Um, He's the image of the invisible God. To be made in the image of God in a perfect way, and in a way that is not marred over, is, is to be like Jesus. Um, and the church has taught consistently that, when, uh, that, that redemption looks like that. That redemption looks like Jesus at the right hand of the Father, being taken up into God. Um, and this is, uh, this is to say that what we have, what we have to look forward to is, is not sort of uh, just kind of, you know, a life of harps and terrible uh, cartoons that show up in the Sunday paper about heaven. But we have, we have the very living relationship of the Son to the Father before us as our hope. Okay. Um, this is why, you know, Jesus used such languages, you know, <laughs> he abides in me and I in him, right? This is that language of abiding in God. Um, it also means that I trust in God as my protector and provider. Um, that is to say that when you were a child, and maybe you had a terrible childhood, so you can sort of write this off as, well, I got a terrible childhood and it wasn't normal, but, and it wasn't even good, but here's what I can say. is that a child looks to, the, looks to a father uh, as a protector and provider. Um, and certainly in the ancient world, it was far more clear that that was the case. The father was a protector and a provider. And I put my hope in God as his child and heir in Christ. Um, has anybody ever received an inheritance in this room? It's, it's an amazing thing that happens when that takes place. Um, it will change your life. It's an amazing thing. Because you, you, here's what you realize. You realize that 
I am the beneficiary of something that I did not do. I, I, there's no way I could have done it. And at a young age to receive even just, you know, even if it's a small amount of money, right? Even if it's just a couple thousand dollars, you say, man, that was, a, that was an amazing thing. Um, an heir in the ancient world looks forward and lives in expectation of what will be theirs. Now, it's not to say that it's already theirs or that they've already gotten it, but it's to say that they live in expectation of that um, because it will alter their life. Um, it will put them in a, on a standing. Why do you say that God the Father is almighty? I call the Father almighty because he has power over everything and accomplishes everything he wills. Together with his Son and Holy Spirit, the Father is all-knowing and ever-present in every place. Here we speak to the, the, three, uh, the three omniscient, uh, what is it? omniscient, omnipresent, and what? Omnipotent. Really, when we're speaking about these things, we're talking about the same thing, yes? Um, which is that God is, uh, is uh, pervasive throughout all creation, through the entire cosmos, uh, and it is on this basis that he has power uh, to do things, yes? To do whatever, really. Um, and it is also on this basis that he knows all. Um, Christians explicitly reject the deist idea and the deist conception of God, or the deistic conception, which is what? Yeah, I'm going to make this clock. I'm going to wind it up. I'm going to throw it out there and see how it goes. But I'm pretty much disinterested. I don't really care. Um, no, 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 no. Listen, the God who is incarnate in Jesus Christ is not, is explicitly, is explicitly the completely opposed to deism. Deist God doesn't become incarnate. Um, so, hope that helps you. Okay. I would say that actually the majority of Americans today are actually deists in the, in the clearest sense. They, they essentially say that um, God sort of shows up for the big stuff but doesn't sweat the small stuff. What, when we think that, what, is it, what does it say about our convictions regarding God? How do we pray if that's the case? You know, sorry to bother you, Lord. I know this isn't a big thing, and you usually deal with big things, but uh, how about one little thing for me, please? And no. How does that teach us to think about the incarnation? God all of a sudden takes interest in this world and shows up? Out of the blue? Is that, is that what the gospel's saying? No, in fact, what's being said in Scripture is that the God who has cared, has always cared, has always had a deep interest, has always been, uh, has always, in a sense, been so tied to this world um, that in a final and terrible way, um, he ties his fate to it. I mean, that, that's, that's probably a little bit extreme, but, but that's basically it, yes? Right? By, this, is, this is the Christmas story, Yes? God cedes control over, him, over himself and enters into our world. Um, and, and, and it's not that he's not in control, it's that he's, he's given it over. He's given himself over to us. Um, so that, that should hopefully shatter all those ideas. Okay. Why do you call God the Father creator? 
I call God the Father creator because he is the sole designer and originator of everything that exists. He creates and sustains all things through his word and gives life to all creatures through his spirit. It's here that we need to be very careful. Because it's often that we get very compartmentalized in our thinking about the Trinity. And we say, okay, well, God the Father is the creator. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is the redeemer. And the Holy Spirit has something else to do. And we, we don't quite know what that is. Uh, maybe someday we'll find out, right? Uh, and, and this is problematic because, in fact, the actions of one person of the Trinity are indicative of the actions of the whole. Um, so when we say that God the Father is creator, we don't mean that, you know, the Son is disinterested in creation. Because after all, how is it that God creates? Through his word, yes? Through this, and it's not just like, it's not just magic. It's not like, men shikaboo and bippity boppity boo. It's not like that, okay? It's, it's, uh, it's he's out of this eternal word that he's continually uh, begetting out of his, out of his person. Um, creation springs to being. And it's animated by the Holy Spirit. So that's why we say that God, God the Father is the sole designer and originator of everything that exists. So what does that mean? This has some consequences. Oh. We can't just sort of blame the parts of creation we don't like on some sort of demigod. Okay? Like, that's what it means, essentially. So I can't just sort of say, oh, these mosquitoes are killing me. You know? I'm, God, I'm so thankful you didn't make mosquitoes and that some other demigod made mosquitoes. Um, you know, we, we can't do that. Um, Christians have to have a capacity for understanding the, even the parts of creation that, they, that, they, that drive them nuts as being given by God. So it forces us, and I think this is really important, it forces us to think about creation in, in ways that are uncomfortable, yes? Um, and indeed, probably not even natural. Um, ancient people are always passing off the parts of creation they don't like on some demigod they also don't like. Okay? We can't do that. We don't get to do that as Christians. Um, it also means that if there's anything in creation that doesn't function the way you think it can or, or doesn't live, um, isn't, isn't as it should be, um, then we've got a really simple word for that. Sin. Um, what we witness is a, is a creation which is, which is broken at a fundamental level. Um, not one that uh, should work perfectly well if we could only get our minds straight about it. That's not the case. How does recognizing God as creator affect your understanding of his creation? I acknowledge that God made for his own glory everything that exists. He created human beings in his image, male and female, to serve him as creation stewards, managers, and caretakers. He entrusts his good creation to us as a gift to enjoy and a responsibility to, to fulfill. Okay. Um, this is to say that when we... When we think about creation, when we try to understand creation, um, we understand it as being created for God's glory. Now, what is God's glory? What does that mean? Go ahead. What's that? His grand nature, sure. Have you ever, have you ever had like a glorious moment where you had glory? You might be thinking, yes, I scored a touchdown in junior high. It was like amazing. <laughs> I actually did. 
the only touchdown I've ever scored, junior high. It was a fluke, too. Uh, but it was glorious. <laughs> what else? What do you experience when you think about glory? Remember one time in college, I, had, I, had, I was sicker than a dog, and I took the second finance exam of the basic intro to finance class, and I thought, oh, this is going to go terribly, and I got a perfect score on it, which doesn't happen. That was glorious. Okay. What are we talking about here? Oh, we're talking about mastery. Yes? Um, maybe you've baked a cake that's perfect. At least so far as you understand it. Okay. Maybe you've put on a musical performance that was flawless. Do you see what's going on? It's glorious. Why is this gl It's glorious because there's a mastery involved. And you know, like, you know when you're in the presence of a master, yes? Um, think about that concert you went to where your absolute hero in music was performing and it was just spectacular. There's glory in that, yes? I mean, every time I go see Bela Fleck, I'm like, oh, this is amazing. <laughs> this guy's a genius. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm nothing, right? It's like that, okay? <laughs> And that's literally how much I geek out at Bale Fleck. Uh, but do you see what's going on? It's, it's to say that God has glory in creation because he has mastery over creation. And what he does, he does perfectly. Yes? Now, how's that going? Ooh. Like, we've messed it up, friends. That's what sin is. We're going to talk a lot more about sin. But it's to say that, that what we look forward to um, is the redemption of creation which exists for the glory of God. And it, it does now. Um, as the psalmist says, the heavens declare the glory of God. He created human beings in his image, male and female. Let me just say something really clearly. Maleness and femaleness exist for the glory of God. They're not sort of attributes which we draw to ourselves to make ourselves feel right about things or to, or to sort of uh, experience ourselves within this kind of uh, very limited understanding of creation. No, um, we're made for God's glory. We're made to be like Jesus. To serve him as creation stewards, managers, and caretakers. Um, this is something about stewardship. Have you ever left your house in the, in the stewardship of another house sitter or something like that? Okay. We did this past summer. And, um, and what do you do? This is always what's said. You know, maybe you leave kids with a babysitter. Maybe you were a babysitter at one point. You know what this is like. It's like, help yourself to anything that's in the fridge. Okay. And we don't just say that because we don't want to be specific. We just say that because it's like, gosh, just eat whatever you want. It doesn't matter. <laughs> um, we also do things like, when, you know, when we leave our house, it's like, feel free to have people over. You know, just treat the house as you would your own. That's stewardship. In a, in a, in a nutshell, that's stewardship. Um, and, you know, I would say, you know, when we, when we leave our house, we don't put locks on the bar. We don't put locks on the wine cabinet. It's mi casa su casa, yes? Enjoy it. Use it. Um, and this is what God does with creation. He says, my creation is, is yours. Enjoy it. Use it. Um, use it well, for sure. 
He entrusts his good creation for us to, as a gift to enjoy and a responsibility to fulfill. Creation is understood as a gift, um, as a grace. What does it mean that God made both heaven and earth? It means that all things, whether visible or invisible, physical or spiritual, were brought into being out of nothing by the word of the eternal God. This to us as modern readers sounds so obvious, but I can assure you that to the ancient world it was not. Um, Ancient people were divided on several questions. The idea that a God could create everything out of nothing was actually a novel concept. Um, Most people conceived of the God sort of taking some pre-existent matter over here and turning it into this over here. Um, And, well, that's kind of of a nice idea, right? Because it says, well, you know, the gods are limited by their materials. So anything that's messed up, just blame it on that. Yeah? Yeah, And there are a lot of artists who do that. They're like, oh, if only I had better paint, you know, it would have been better and it would have worked better. If, If only I had a better guitar, I would have been able to play a better song. It's that kind of thing. And, and that, that, that can tend to describe, and this is one of the ways that ancient people do this, they account for some of the discrepancies in creation. Yes? Like, you know, think about it. My body doesn't function the way it's supposed to. I wake up with pains in the night, and I literally do. I wake up with, you know, I have all sorts of things that just don't, that just aren't right. They don't feel right. And then someday I'm going to get really sick. Well, who knows what it is? We experience death, right? How do we account for that? Um, and the way that Christians have accounted for it is to, is to say emphatically and even against uh, our kind of uh, intuition in a sense that, yeah, God made it. He made it out of nothing. No preexistent matter. We also say that God created everything that is, both the visible and the invisible, okay, which is also a distinct, distinction from uh, ancient religions. Um, the Gnostics, for instance, most of the time we teach that... Uh, that uh, invisible is created by one demigod, okay? visible is created by another demigod. Okay? Invisible demigod is better than visible demigod. Okay. Maybe a little bit. Okay? So what's, what's the goal in a creation that's like this? You're being had. You're being tricked. Get it through your skull that your body is made by a malevolent God who wants to trick you into thinking that you have some sort of existence in the body that matters. So what do you do? There are only two options if you're a good Gnostic. The first is beat the daylights out of my body, fast like crazy, live a totally ascetic life, try to get it through my skull, that this thing that I experience here is not really the thing. Okay, option number one. Option number two is, it's kind of like in Groundhog Day, when, when Bill Murray realizes that this is never going to stop, and so he lays into a stack of pancakes, and he does whatever he wants. It's kind of a hilarious scene, right? It's, you know what? My body's made for pleasure, and it really doesn't matter what happens in this body because it's just unimportant. So what am I going to (laughs) do? Whatever I want, because it doesn't matter. So this this is the mess. 
But Christians, again, are a people of the incarnation, and we know something about this, yes? What do we know? That God made everything that is, and we also believe in a resurrection. So we are forced to believe, and this is a good thing, that the body is actually, oh my goodness, it's good, and created by the one God for our good. So how does this alter the Christian understandings of both asceticism and sin, on the other hand? Yes, we fast. Yes, we take on ascetic discipline. Absolutely. We also avoid sin. And for Paul, this means living by faith in Jesus. Um, it, It means living, yes, very much in the body. Not trying to have out-of-body experiences constantly, uh, but living a life in the body that glorifies God. And, and he's constant about this, you know, uh, uh, saying to many, glorify God in your bodies. Um, so, uh, you know, this is kind of my plug. Just we, Many modern Christians have sort of denigrated the body. They've said, hey, you know, what you do in the body doesn't matter. It's just flesh. Who cares? It's all going to get burned up, consumed on the last day anyway. That's not true. Uh, but, but you see, that's the idea, is who cares? And, and I will tell you this. Christians care about the body. Remember, let me just add one more. We were having a wonderful conversation one night, three years ago, some friends with a theologian. And, uh, and one, one person in our group who was you know, very well, you know, he was well-intentioned at the time, but he got clobbered, right? He said, well, surely there's something good about the way that we modern people understand the body. Like, surely there's something which is, like, really helpful about it. And, and he was like, I don't think that's really true. The ancient, yeah, the fathers really care way more about the body than you'll ever care. <laughs> and it was an amazing moment. Because he was saying this. He was saying, we think we understand it. We think we care. We think that we're right up there. We really are not. Um, Ancient Christians cared about the body. And you see this in evidence in, has anybody ever been to ancient catacombs in in Europe, for instance? Okay, reverence paid to the body um, as a vessel of of God's grace. Go ahead, Father Matthew. Yeah, that's right. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. So so here's the thing. Like, the incarnation means that, and we're going to talk a lot about this, but God has taken to himself a full human nature into his person, into one person of the Trinity. And, and it's not like at a certain point he's just going to let go of that. You know, become disincarnate. The incarnation is an established fact. It, it, it's, 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 we Christians say it's not going to change that God has taken to himself a full human nature. And, and this is the basis upon which we think about redemption, yes? It's the redemption of our bodies. Um, it's how we think about um, what glorification at the right hand of the Father looks like. Okay. All right. One more. If God made the world good, why do I sin? Adam and Eve rebelled against God, thus bringing into the world pain, fruitless toil, alienation from God and for other death. I have inherited a fallen and corrupted human nature, and I too sin and fall short of God's glory. This is basically the teaching of original sin. Um, 
the teaching on original sin is basically this. It's, it's the flip side of the gospel coin, right? There's good news, yes? And in order for it to be good news, what has to be there too? There's got to be bad news. And the bad news is that, um, that in this original rebellion of Adam and Eve, rebelling against God, the world was brought into pain, fruitless toil, alienation from God and from each other, and finally death. The teaching on original sin is essentially, I like to boil it down like this. You and I are dying of a terminal disease called sin. Is that stark enough for you? Okay. And, and, and we inherit this. Um, I have inherited the fallen and corrupted human nature, and I too sin and fall short of God's glory. And there have been a lot of analogies that have been used to talk about this, um, and a lot of differences in terms of extremes, right? So some have said, hey, listen, like, human nature is, is like, it's not even really a thing anymore. It's the, the extent to which sin is destroyed it is so dramatic that it's, it's, just, it's just unrecognizable. Um, I tend to prefer uh, the thought that goes, human nature gets bent and distorted by sin. Um, completely destroyed? Nope. But bent and distorted. Um, you might think about it as that, you know, if you ever had... Um, something that is just in terrible need of repair and you take it to an expert saying, I don't know, maybe you could do something with this and they give it back to you and, what is, and it's fixed. And what is it? It's not just as good as you thought it could be. It's better. Um, I've had a, I had a repair guy once that I actually took my shoes to him. He was a, shoe, he was a cobbler, you know. And I take shoes that I thought were just done for. Like, and I'd say, you know, maybe there's, you're a miracle worker, maybe there's something you can do about this pair of shoes. And he, and he would turn, he would give them back to me, looking better than new. Um, the shoes had, in many ways, ceased to function. Um, they'd broken down so severely. But here's, here's the thing about redemption. Instead of obliterating our human nature, right, in redemption, what does God do? Instead of taking it away and replacing it with something else, what does he do? Ah. He heals, he redeems, he renovates, he restores. And, and that should give us great hope, right? Not that we're going to get all destroyed. You know, there'd be like some new Delcy walking around, right? No. When we say new, we don't mean completely brand new. What do we mean? We mean renovated. Um, we, we use a, there's a word in Greek, anakinosis is the word for this. It means to be new again unto a higher state. Yes? That's what we look forward to. That's what, that's what the resurrection's about. It's about being restored to a higher state. But can you, if I can be able to add one more analogy before we break, um, when Elle and I lived in California, we, had, we bought a house that was built in 1977. And when we bought it, it had the original kitchen. Green linoleum floors. Um, in fact, I'm very certain that there were green appliances at one point, but she had, and the previous owner had replaced those, thanks be to God. And so one of the first things I did was I went in with a, with a sledgehammer and a crowbar, and I, I demoed the kitchen. I had it myself a demo day. Okay? And, uh, 
it was a magnificent week. Uh, <laughs> it takes longer than a day. Um, and, uh, but what did I not do? I didn't sit there and say, you know, I'm going to restore this kitchen to exactly the way it was in 1977. What would that be like? That would be terrible. Okay. What did I do? I said, I'm going to make this kitchen better than it's ever been. I'm going to make it new. I'm getting a new kitchen. Right? Um, I hope that kind of gives you a sense of where this is going. We were made for glory. And I, I'll say this. The catechism begins in glory and it ends in glory. And there's a reason for that. It's to whet your appetite for glory. It's to get you thinking. What would a glorious human life look like? Um, to get you hungry for it. Um, and to get you to meditate on it. So there it is. Exciting. To be made in glory, to be made in the image of God means we were made to be like Jesus. Um, and that takes quite a bit of remaking. But how worth it it is. We'll begin again next week.